G'day, I'm Sean, and welcome to the Car Expert Podcast. We're back again for another episode. Joining me, as always, Scott Colley, James Wong. Boys, how are you? I'm good. Excited to talk tech today. There's a lot of flashy stuff. I know. We've got EVs, we've got tech, and James, we've got a Volkswagen product for you to talk about. Don't know why I'd be excited about it. I don't know either, but um, (laughs) we'll see what happens when we get around to that. Yes, today we're talking about uh, Hertz unplugging their EV fleet. Uh, We've got uh, a bit of a wrap-up from the Consumer Electronics Show in America with some of the cool concepts that were shown off there, and we're going to talk about the Volkswagen Amarok. But let's dive straight in. Um, We've been talking a while. Rental companies are a sort of test bed for a lot of new car sales. They, uh, I know Six in Australia got a big fleet of uh, MG vehicles in to try and get people into it. But Hertz in America uh, promised they were going to buy 100,000 EVs uh, in 2021. And by the end of 2022, they'd only bought 50,000. And now they seem to be offloading all of them, which is kind of crazy, I guess. <laughs> it's definitely a step back from what they promised. I think that 100,000 were going to come over a long period of time. It wasn't as if they were going to do it in one hit. But what we're seeing is that Hertz is worried about repair costs. And it's a pretty reasonable thing to worry about when you're running 50,000 of the same car. A lot of petrol cars have been out there for a long time. I mean, the RAV4 has existed for a long time. Toyota's been making the parts in it for a long time. And that means that if something goes wrong, you can pretty easily source a new one. Tesla doesn't have that, and it doesn't have the distribution network or the parts manufacturing network to keep up. So if your entire business model is built around keeping cars on the road, and if something goes wrong, you can't keep cars on the road, it's a pretty big hit. Um, so we've seen uh, like reports out of private buyers. We saw one gentleman in the US with a Rivian. He had a slight fender bender. It was up for a $40,000 repair bill, which is about $250,000 Australian dollars these days. But, <laughs> um, I guess that's one of the concerns that, that hurts in the US have with these is that the, the ongoing repair costs, if there is a slight fender bender, and if you've ever seen a rental car, that seems to happen a lot. Is, that, like, is it because of uh, things in the bumpers like radars and computers and telemetry and stuff like that? So it's not so much down to the radars, computers, cameras, that sort of thing, because most modern cars have those. Beyond a really entry-level cheap hatchback, everything has a radar in it now for autonomous emergency braking. Everything's got a rear-view camera, a front-view camera. They're common parts across the industry, and they do make repairs more expensive, but not 40 grand expensive as opposed to maybe a grand expensive. The issue is with parts availability. So obviously if something is rare, it is in higher demand and it's more expensive. But we're also seeing uh, from the insurance standpoint, when there is an insurance fix required on these cars, the insurance on the vehicle itself keeps going up. Because for an insurance company, if you own a Model 3 and you crash that Model 3, they need to give you a loan car while the car's being fixed. If that car's off the road for six or eight weeks as opposed to two weeks while the part arrives, well, that rental, that insurance company, excuse me, is paying a really long time to give you that loan car. Their costs go up, they're paying more for the parts, all of that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily the parts themselves, though they may be more expensive, but it's the whole process of getting a vehicle fixed and then insuring that vehicle to start with that is getting more expensive because of this. Um, I know Paul's hiding over there, but he might have his headphones on. Paul, how much did your Model 3 insurance go up? The almost double Paul said. Yeah. So <laughs> this is something we're seeing more and more of because as insurance companies have to repair these vehicles that they haven't had to repair before, they're realising the network's not there. Yeah. And that's with no claim, Paul, apparently. Paul said, almost double with no claim for those playing <laughs> along at home. Um, now, James, one of the other reasons that hasn't it's exactly been cited, but we know it's sort of an ongoing thing, is resale values on EVs traditionally are not, being, are not that great compared to you know, comparable ICE vehicles. Do you think that's one of the reasons why, you know, Hertz in the States are looking to 
try and offload these now while the vehicles are still young? It's probably still a factor, yeah, because when you think about these big fleets, the, when these cars get too old or they've done too many miles, they just get offloaded. And if, if they're spending more money than the equivalent um, combustion engine vehicle to put these vehicles on fleet, but then getting less than what an ICE vehicle would fetch on the second-hand market, then you're basically losing a whole lot of money. And so, you know, from a business perspective, it's a, a high cost and a low return. And on top of that, you're dealing with all the insurance stuff as well. It just seems like a very costly exercise. Um, so at the moment, you know, we've discussed this before, EVs are still fairly new to the market, at least in the volumes that we're seeing today. And so uh, there's a lot of unknowns around residuals, around Pairs, you know, that kind of support after you take delivery and, you know, rental cars, I feel like might be involved in more accidents given <laughs> if people definitely. are coming from other parts of the world, you know, in America, you drive it for us, we're driving on a different side of the road, you might not be familiar with the road rules. And, you know, a lot of EVs on these kinds of fleets might be the first time that someone's experienced an electric vehicle. And when you think of how quick a Tesla is, if they hit the accelerator too hard, for example, you've rear-ended someone or you've gone into the side of a cafe or something, not to say that that's... Uh, that's exactly what's happened here. It's but another the, layer of challenge and risk involved in someone driving a rental car, which is already quite a challenging high-risk situation for a lot of people. Exactly. And when you've got such a high number of vehicles from a car maker like Tesla, which has historically struggled to meet uh, parts production because it's primarily trying to pump out the vehicles to meet the demand globally, um, you just see these... Um, breaks in the chain where if something needs to be fixed or you need a part or something like that, if they're prioritising getting cars out to markets and not focusing on manufacturing spare parts for these kind of fleets, then that's where you run into these kind of issues. And traditionally with rental companies, I guess you see it's a lot of base model, lower spec cars that we see, you know, base model RAV4s, low end Hyundai's, yeah. that's the sort of cars. But um, it's not just Teslas that these guys have been buying, they've been buying up Polestars and things as well. These cars, I, I'm not sure of the American pricing, but I know in Australia, like they don't start anywhere south of 60 grand. That's a lot They're of not money. cheap in the States either, but they are um, similar to Australia when you factor in the exchange rate and, and that sort of thing now that we get our Teslas from China. Um, I think the, the upfront price of these cars isn't so much the problem. Because if you look at a modern rental fleet, all of them are trying to do things a bit differently. And there are lots of options for premium customers or people who want something a bit nicer. Uh, I think the issue is just uncertainty. And if you look at a rental business, I don't know exactly how much planning goes into it, but I know that when you sign on the dotted line for a new car, there would be calculated depreciation on them, there would be maintenance costs, there would be uptime and downtime, there would be all of that stuff factored in. And I think Hertz made these calculations last year or the year before based on one set of numbers, and those numbers have now changed. And in a business like theirs where they need to know long-term what things are gonna be worth so they can keep planning and buying inventory, that's really challenging. So. I think rather than the upfront purchase price, it is more down to not knowing as much about the resale value and it's down to uncertainty in, in that sort of space. The other thing is maybe it's a, a warning against making grand proclamations. I mean, lots of car makers have come out over the last few years and said, we're going to be all electric by this date. And prior to that in the mid 2010s, I don't know about you, James, but I remember covering a million different brands going, we will be fully autonomous by this date. Mm -hmm. So. I think it sort of shows that if you do want to step out and make these big claims, you are then at the whims of the rest of the world when it comes down to actually fulfilling them. So I guess um, we did have a viewer question this week and I think it ties into all this really nicely. So Matthew wrote to us on Instagram, basically, it's very long, it's a question there. Um, basically what he wants to know is, what is the resale value like predicted to be on EVs? Because by his logic that the batteries are quoted to last around 10 years, so if that's the case, the cars are going to be worth nothing in 10 to 12 years. So I guess, um, 
is uh, is there is this like a misunderstanding or will they become a throwaway item in after that time look i, I think there are, i say i think th there are too many valuable things in a battery especially a battery the size of something like a tesla or a polestar for that item to be a throwaway it's just as simple as that when you think of all the materials that go into it although it may not be able to operate in the same window in 10 years time the car itself still has a purpose has a usable range and will be worth something to someone but even if the car isn't worth something, there are a lot of people who are developing home storage, for example, or refurbishing old batteries and that sort of thing, that that battery is going to be worth something to. So I don't know how much it's gonna be worth, and that's the big question we're all wondering, obviously. You look at old Nissan Leafs on car sales and they've got 80 Ks of range and they're worthless, essentially, they're big golf carts. But we don't yet know at scale what something like a Tesla is gonna be worth in 10 years time because we haven't reached that point yet. I do think that it's not going to be worthless. The materials themselves are worth something and the car still will serve a purpose, but whether it's the same as now with an internal combustion car where it sort of follows a nice, neat line is not as clear. And James, I want to ask you this because I know you're currently looking around at purchasing a new car. Is, I guess, the, the thought of resale values on an EV turning you away from buying an EV or, or is it just not quite in your, you know, in your scope at the moment. Yeah, I think for me, it's more about the use case rather than resale. Um, I know that a lot of people who are buying cars are very cognizant of resale values and ask that question a lot, you know, what car is going to maintain its value more? I personally don't buy a car with, with the intention of selling it, so I don't necessarily factor that in the same way, um, and I try to find something that I'm going to enjoy driving given, as for our line of work, we obviously drive a variety of cars, and you, you, if you own it, you still want to be motivated to drive it otherwise it just sits there collecting dust um, in terms of the the EV resale question um, to sort of go back to what the original thing was I think the other part is is that you know battery technology is evolving really quickly and we've seen that just in the last few years alone using that first generation leaf as an example which was arguably the first mass production electric vehicle on sale mm -hmm. you give it five to ten years and the battery has barely 100 k's of range the cars that are on sale now won't be as drastically low in terms of their usable range at you know that same point in their life. Coming and, off a higher base with yeah, the range exactly right. to start And with. the manufacturers at the moment generally warrant the batteries. It's not that the battery's going to last that long. They warrant the batteries to have around 75% of their original capacity after eight to 10 years. So, so if just you for clarity on that, sorry to cut you off, but Tesla is eight years, 160,000 Ks, 70% battery. Yeah. And some other brands give you longer times. But so you think about at that point, you've still got a fairly usable vehicle even 10 years after purchase. But then you never know, in five to 10 years time when solid state comes out or you know all these new battery chemistries that offer you better efficiency, lower degradation over time, you might see these things change. And then that renders the current technology a lesser value. So it's really, like you say, it's a real unknown because they, it really just depends on how things change moving forward. We're seeing electric vehicle demand slow. That might be the reason because people might stick to hybrids or internal combustion vehicles or we might see plug-in hybrids take off. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, a real, um, it's a real interesting question, but it's not really one that has an answer. I think that's where uh, a lot of car makers are offering guaranteed future value. And it's not always a good deal because often when they guarantee to buy back the car at a certain value, they're making their money on the interest rate they offer you over the three or five years or whatever you're taking the loan for. But I know a lot of people who have, within my sort of family and world, looked at electric cars or newer brands have considered that as an option because for them it lets them enjoy the car for a set period of time, see the market play out and put some of that risk back on the car maker. So 
Not saying it's a great deal necessarily because obviously they've got to make their money somehow and often that is through the interest rate on the repayments you make throughout that period. But there are options out there for people who want an electric car but don't want to wear the whole depreciation hit themselves in three or five years too. Well, look, if you've rented an EV from one of the big rental companies, leave a comment, let us know. How was the experience and how was the car? Was it in good condition? Did it feel a bit worn out, I suppose? Was it a bit like a one-year-old iPhone and not quite functioning as well as it should? Let us know. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll move on. Our Consumer Electronics Show is an event that happens in the States. Basically, it's everything from the latest phones, iPads, TVs, and cars these days. Mm. They get shown off there uh, for... For, well, pretty much anyone can go along to it these days, but it is technically a trade show. Uh, and it's like a motor show for everything tech, which is cool because we do get a whole bunch of new cars that come out of it every year, or new car concepts anyway. Uh, so we're gonna run through a couple of these and you guys can elaborate a bit more on them. <laughs> but we're gonna start with the Honda Zero series. Now these things uh, look like spaceships, I guess. They've got a saloon and a van. The saloon, to me, it looks a bit like a Lamborghini Diablo from the side. It's a really funky looking thing, um, but yeah. Who would like to tell me a little bit more about this? I'm going to hand this over to you because I've seen all the notes on your piece of paper there, James. <laughs> yeah, because I um, noted down on everything but the Honda stuff. But, um, from the, it, it was really interesting because Honda's been doing a, a new, a lot of new concepts at the moment. We saw a range of electric vehicles come out uh, last year. Um, we've seen them including, I can't remember what they were called, but they were like Hot Wheels looking things. And then they've revealed this, they've revealed the prelude concept which might not be electric, it might be a hybrid or something like that. And there's a really interesting difference in the design language of all these families of cars. And you even look at what they did with that GM-based Prologue, which sort of looks like a Land uh, Range Rover Evoque. Mm. And so they've got very clear families or clusters of designs and looks and things like that. And I don't know whether this is gonna be for different markets. So the Zero Series might be some futuristic lot of cars for America. And then there was the other ones the that might e be for China. for China, I think was. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that it's it's really interesting, and I, I think what Honda has done so well with its current range of cars is re-establish a level of consistency and cohesion amongst its range. And so seeing these wild concepts, it's great that they're getting creative again because for a while Honda was quite boring and you know there were all the jokes about it being for old people, and now their cars are a little bit exciting again. But the the clear diversion in like their strategy is like a little bit odd. And I didn't quite um, like the designs that were shown at CES quite as much as you guys did. Um, but it's definitely interesting. And I guess, you know, let them be creative and land on something, I guess, that finds better favour with the public. I, I don't like the idea of different models for different markets. I understand there's going to be market-specific stuff, especially for China. But one of the frustrations with Honda recently has been Thailand gets one thing that we get, America gets something else that we don't, Japan gets something different. And with the internet, people know what the rest of the world gets and they can see if others are getting a better or a worse deal. So Honda is in a good spot at the moment, but there is a chance in a couple of years' time when these really cool products start rolling out overseas, if we don't get them, that people start to feel a bit resentful towards what we're missing out on again. And I really don't want that because Honda's current cars are great and I'd love to see it stay strong in Australia and sort of build on this new business model it's got going on. All right, cool. We'll move on. Um, this one is... is the next one's good and it's also bad. Yes. <laughs> so it's uh, an update to the uh, Mark 8 Golf GTI from Volkswagen. Uh, no more manual globally. That's the bad part, mm. I guess. Not that we had it in Australia anymore, but I, 
you know, if that's the original hot hatch that no longer has a manual, then it's not looking good for the rest Days of the Days are numbered, aren't they? Yes. Um, uh, but speaking of Honda, we just tested the, uh, the new Civic Type R with a manual and it was quite good. So, um, yeah, a little bit of hope, I guess. Um, but the GTI has finally gotten rid of those silly haptic touch buttons on the steering wheel and brought back actual buttons. Igor's pumping his fist behind the camera right now. He's very excited. Because um, James doesn't like Volkswagen, Scott, I'll pass it to you to talk a little bit about this one. Because You've come to the right to place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the new GTI is going to be a heavy update of the current car. Because for one, Volkswagen is going heavily electric. There's not a heap of investment in existing internal combustion products anymore. But also it's a facelift. It's not an all new model. I'm going to leave the manual thing alone for the moment because I feel like it's a discussion for all of us. But the current GTI is still a really good car. Even in Australia where we don't get the club sport, we only get the 180 kilowatt version. It is comfortable, it's quick, it handles really nicely. The interior would drive me away from buying one because it's got lots of fiddly touch surfaces. It's a bit slow, although it is much quicker than at launch. And that steering wheel, I have big hands and every time I go around a corner right, I turn the heated steering wheel on. <laughs> um, this is Volkswagen listening to feedback. It's gotten rid of the little haptic buttons, put proper ones on there, which are better. The central touchscreen looks bigger, it's got a more logical layout from the looks of it, and there's backlighting on some of the stuff that didn't have backlighting. It does seem like someone in Germany has been reading everyone's complaints and comments and just going tick, tick, tick on this update, which is great news. I just hope this time around we get more power from our GTI, because the current model that we have is the same, a version of the same engine that's in your car, James, with the same amount of power. And I, I'm led to believe that there's a bit of an update to the infotainment. There's a bit of AI going on in the infotainment Yeah, as you well. can now get ChatGPT in the car. Right. Which scares the hell out of me because ChatGPT, if you ask it the right question, will give you the right answer. But if you ask it the wrong question, it's been known to just very confidently lie to you, basically. So I do hope people don't say to ChatGPT, how do I get home? And it says turn left, right, left, right, and takes you down some weird route that is completely wrong. Right, so um, I guess Siri is out. Sorry, Siri, ChatGPT is in. <laughs> if only Volkswagen had ChatGPT in the days of Dieselgate, they could have just blamed that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll move on. Uh, Mercedes, uh, they have... Well, the G-Class has been around for a long time, and I think we all secretly like the G-Class. Absolutely. It's a cool thing. But they've now got an electric version, which they showed off by doing tank turns on the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, James? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, they weren't actually tank turns, they're G-turns. Well, that's, that's the term that they've coined for it. And yes, they just decided to go on the strip and start spinning around and pirouetting and whatever. Um, I saw a video on social media and posted it to um, my Instagram because I've and with the Kylie Minogue spinning around song playing in the great grade. It was in perfect timing. Um, but yeah, I don't know if they actually revealed much new stuff about the car at the show, but it was sort of a showcase of what's to come. And, you know, the we're, something that a lot of brands have struggled with is electrifying their icons. And the G-Wagon is as much of an icon as something like a Land Cruiser or a Land Rover Defender. And, you know, something so rugged and something that needs to go into the wilderness, hypothetically, not that anyone really takes their G-Classes into the wilderness anymore. Um, it's something that's uh, a very interesting process um, and different brands will go about it in a different way. I think for Mercedes, because the G-Wagon has become this you know, cult icon with like celebrities and soccer players and the rich and famous, I think things like this where you've got some like gimmicky thing that it can do on the Las Vegas Strip when you want to show off to your friends outside Caesars Palace, um, it's definitely <laughs> something that might get people talking. But I'd be more interested to see how it goes off-road or how this feature actually manifests in real-world use 
on a trail or something because the whole point of a tank turn is so that you can have this tiny turning circle when you don't have a lot of room and you don't fall off a cliff, for example. So I feel like that would probably be a better use of that feature, but you know, I guess well, they decided to make a little bit of a noise about it. Well, I think it's the perfect car if you're an environmentally conscious Saudi Arabian oil baron. So <laughs> that's who's <laughs> going to be buying these things. Yeah, I don't know. Very wealthy will. people who want to look like they're they're very yes. environmentally friendly. Yes, um, I, I tell you what, some of the trails in Australia, you still don't have enough room to do that sort oh, of no. thing. So <laughs> I am yeah. interested to see because at some point it's bound to happen. Uh, Jeep has the Rubicon and uh, Mercedes Benz or Magna Steyr, who builds these cars for them in Austria use what's called the Stockel track. I'm looking forward to seeing a tank turn on the Stockel track to show that it's ready for production. Right. That, that's when we know it's coming. <laughs> we'll look forward to that, stay tuned. Um, <laughs> now, this one's a little bit closer to home, uh, ironically. Uh, Vietnamese car company Vinfast, mm. who uh, is proving ground we utilise for our, uh, a lot yeah. of our testing. Um, they have, <laughs> the name really says it all, it's the VF Wild Ute concept. <laughs> it's <laughs> a little nod to Holden there maybe with yeah, the VF. It's definitely wild when you look at it. Yeah. Um, who wants to take this one? I actually think this looks really cool and I think there are some really cool ideas in it that may never make production. But uh, Vinfast is at one point was looking really hard at Australia. It was going to use the Holden Proving Ground, which it bought to develop cars. It was going to set up a local office and potentially sell cars locally. That's all gone now. Um, the Proving Ground is still owned by Vinfast, but local office is gone. No matter how many times I email their head of PR and comms and marketing people, they will not respond. Please do respond. Do you get an out of office reply? No, nothing. We're permanently out of office? Not a word. Right. So would really love to chat to someone about what happened in Australia and what the plan is next. But um, this wild is potentially a chance for them to start again in the States because their early products have not been well received. They've been described as not ready for the American market. It looks fantastic. It looks a good size. And it's got some cool stuff in it like a rear bulkhead of the tray that folds down with the seat so you can load extra long items into the cabin. Um, it's also got really cool styling that I think if you are looking for a lifestyle electric ute would make it stand out alongside an F-150 Lightning or a Rivian. So there's potential there, but Vinfast has a few hurdles to overcome before it actually can, I suppose, show that potential. A public image might be one of them. A big one. <laughs> yeah. All right, um, the last one for CES. Um, this might be the worst name, a contender for the worst <laughs> name of 2024. <laughs> it's the Kia PBV, the platform beyond vehicles. Sounds like a beer. It <laughs> It does have a big hard day. PBV. <laughs> um, basically, they're futuristic people movers. Uh, they bad name, but they look really, really cool. So, James. Tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, so um, Kia's PBV range, I didn't realise they'd renamed the platform to Platform Beyond Vehicles. I thought they were purpose-built vehicles, but I guess they <laughs> decided to get creative. They sort of look like something out of Wally or something like that. They've got really cute, uh, like, robotic-looking faces and whatever, and um, the first production one is actually due in 2025. And if anything, what we've seen out of Kia and Hyundai of late is that all of their electric vehicle concepts have this really distinctive look, and then they managed to come to market looking a lot like what they did at the show. So I'm really keen to see how these become production models and how true they'll stay to the concepts. And, you know, it's this very simplistic, pared back, open plan cabin. There's people movers, there's um, commercial vans. So there are obviously a variety of use cases here. There was PB3, 5 and 7 or something like that. So there's different sizes for different batteries and different 
urban environments and all that kind of thing. So it'll be really interesting to see what they do. I think what Kia's doing really well at the moment is that they're really trying to deliver on their strategic goals around electrification. Like Scott mentioned earlier in, in the previous segment was that, you know, a lot of brands have come out saying, you know, we're going to go all autonomous by this, we're going to go all electric by this, and then they've had to sort of backstep. And what um, I think the Hyundai group, including Kia, is doing really well is actually really coming to market with a near production ready concept and then a couple of years later bringing out a vehicle that is ready to go and you know we're not seeing too much movement in the actual commercial space I feel like we're seeing a lot of lifestyle utes out of the Americas for example because that's a vehicle that people use as normal things but you know even from Europe we haven't seen a whole lot of proper purpose electric vans for example and so the fact that Kia is really going hard on this stuff to cover everything from your small passenger cars and, you know, family SUVs right through to the commercial vans that tradies and contractors need to use every day for their work, I think is really interesting. And, you know, hopefully if Kia can get this right, it means that the rest of the market will, or the rest of the industry will have to follow and, and get it right as well so that there's some competition in that space. From a business perspective, there's huge potential here. Um, building passenger cars is hard because everyone wants something different. You need different trim levels, you need different engines or battery sizes or motors and that's complexity and that's cost and that's time. Kia, along with urban delivery operators and that sort of thing, wants to build these vehicles for big fleets. And if you can build the same vehicle in the same colour with the same battery and the same motor and the same features, and you can do it on a guaranteed long-term contract, and you can do it without making any changes to that vehicle for a long time, it's a licence to print money. I mean, it's, it's what Rivian wants to do with its delivery vans for Amazon, it's what GM wants to do with its special delivery vehicles, which I think are called Delivery, the brand, or Arrival. Um, it, it's a huge opportunity for Kia to get into the ride-sharing space and say to Uber, we will sell you 15,000 of these and they will all look the same. And Kia loves it and Uber loves it. Huge business potential here. Cool. Well, what do you guys think of uh, all the vehicles that have been showcased at CES this year? Leave a comment and let us know. All right, guys, so this week's uh, question of what would you buy instead of? So this week's Toyota Hilux, which, um, I don't know, we had one recently just before Christmas, and whilst it was technically a new product from them, it feels really old mm -hmm. and a bit underdone. Uh, where would you guys land if not a Toyota Hilux? Scott, I'll go to you first. I'm going to go on Isuzu D-Max. Um, I like the Ford Ranger a lot. I think it's probably objectively a better product than the D-Max. But every time I've driven a D-Max, I've enjoyed it. And I think as well, when you look dollar for dollar relative to a, a V6 Wildtrak, for example, you're getting a lot of car from the Isuzu. So I'd probably wait until the update arrived, but they have the current model in stock and it's a really good thing. There's a lot of charm in the D-Max, I think. Absolutely. It's just, it's sort of just does its job really, really well. For them, I mean, there are a couple of tests it needs to improve on next time when we go off-roading and doing our stuff at the Proving Ground, but as a day-to-day -day ute to live with, I think it's fantastic. All right, James, what about you? What would you buy if not for a Hilux? I think it depends on which Hilux you're talking about because that obviously skews the, the budget a little <laughs> bit, but I think I my I'm not really a ute guy. I don't really enjoy testing a lot of these dual cabs because they're quite agricultural and they're not really my thing. But um, because of that, normally I just lean to recommending a Ranger. I don't necessarily believe you need to go for the high spec models like everyone's doing at the moment. I think, you know, there's plenty of good stuff baked into even like an XL TV6. So you still get the high spec engine. They cover off most of the tech and safety inclusions that you would want out of any modern car, let alone a ute. Um, but it also has a bit of a, it stays within a reasonable 
reasonable budget so you're not spending you know luxury SUV money on a truck uh, so that's probably where I'd go and the, the main difference between Ranger and Amarok is I feel like the Ranger is probably a little bit better suited to Australian roads I know Volkswagen did extensive local testing and development on that car but the Ranger really does feel like an SUV to drive which I think is a real selling point. Well, look, if uh, you're interested in any of the three cars that we've talked about, or four cars, technically, that James <laughs> mentioned, um, head to Google and type in Help Me Car Expert. We can connect you uh, to one of our uh, consultants who are based in Brisbane, so you can talk to someone on the phone in Australia that will help connect you to a dealer, get you a great deal on a new car, and get you into it quicker than you might think you'd be able to. So Google Help Me Car Expert, and if you do leave, use the service, uh, leave a comment, let us know. How was it? But all right, since James mentioned the Amarok, we're going to talk about it. Um, a convenient segue that is. is. Yeah, no, I, I really didn't have to work hard for that one. Um, <laughs> look, just before Christmas, uh, we had the Style TDI 500, which is the sort of mid-spec four-cylinder version. I guess it's the, the sister car to an XLT uh, Ford Ranger, which we had as a long-termer and we loved. We thought it was a really good truck. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, you guys have both driven the Amarok. James already said he doesn't like it, so Scott, I'll go over to you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, what do you think of the Amarok, the, the, that style spec? Look, I think the Amarok, given Volkswagen is doing deals on them at the moment, is a really good thing. Mm, they um, don't car expert. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, fundamentally, from launch, it's been really solid. And we know, obviously, it shares a lot with the Ranger, but it does have an interior that feels more Volkswagen. It looks a bit more Volkswagen on the outside. There's never been anything wrong with it. But now that Volkswagen is sharpening its pencil a little bit and it's got good supply of some of these low and mid-range models coming through, it makes it even easier to recommend because you can say if you don't want to wait for a Ranger, you can get one of these now. Uh, I think to drive, there's not a huge difference between them, but the mid-spec style is quite nice because it's got quite a ute sort of tune to it. The last Amarok was quite a sporty ute, in that context anyway. I realise it wasn't a sports car, but it felt very direct and quite firm compared to some of the other utes. Well, especially when you got into those Walkinshaw yeah, versions. Yeah, handled really well for a ute. I don't know that I want that from my ute. I'd be very happy with a big, comfy ute that's comfortable with a load in the back, and I think the style fits that bill. And now, price-wise, relative to that Ranger, with the spec you get in this style, it also stacks up really nicely. And now, James, I know you don't like the agriculturalness of utes, <laughs> which is, I guess, where the Amarok does come in a little bit for you. What do you think of the interior in these? Uh, I think it's definitely as, as car-like or as SUV-like as you can get this side of something like a Ranger. And I guess that they have a shared architecture and a lot of similarities inside and out. So that's sort of where that comes from. And I think what Volkswagen does better than Ford is the technology implementation. They, they have nice screens or they've They've used the Ford base and refined it so that it you almost couldn't tell that it was a Ford at the beginning. It's basically a different skin on the screen, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so it, you, you, it's quite funny. You look at like the digital instrument cluster, which you get the, the full 12-inch one, which looks really high-end, and the way that they've redone the skin, it makes it look like the one that's out of a Golf, which mm. for someone who perhaps is already a Volkswagen owner will be much more comfortable jumping into rather than some of the funky stuff that you get in the Ford. Who do we so, know that's like that? I don't know any Volkswagen owners. So yeah. I'm sure we know someone that's I don't know Volkswagen her either. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, and I think for, for some people, the Amarok has a more refined and perhaps luxurious look to it, sort of like the Mazda BT50 in that it's more designed like a passenger car and even the interior is a bit more, you know, catered to those people who may be coming from an SUV or have an SUV already and sort of prefer that look and feel rather than something a bit more rugged. So I think that um, Volkswagen has really done a good job at refining the Amarok formula with this new generation and distinguishing it itself enough from the Ford roots or the Ford platform without taking away the advantages of what makes that car so great. With all of that said, I, I do have a couple of complaints about the Amarok that are kind of stemmed from its Ford roots. 
there's some really clever stuff on the Ranger you don't get on the Amarok, and that does kind of annoy me. Um, the step cut into the side of the tray on the high-end Ranger versions, mm. I don't know why Volkswagen didn't do that. Maybe it was a deal with Ford that only Ford could use it. Also, little things inside. Um, the cup holders in the Amarok are harder to get to because they're tucked in front of the central storage box. The trailer brake controller is hidden away next to the USB ports and it makes the whole thing very fiddly. There's a few little details in it that feel like the car was set up and designed with Ford's design in mind. And then Volkswagen's had to change a couple of little detail things and the way they've been changed isn't as neat as they are in the Ranger. My other thing with it is the old Amarok had a very distinct feel. It smelt like a V-dub. It, it had a lot of bits and pieces in it that were V-dub. This new one, for all the work Volkswagen's done, and I, they've done a much better job than Mazda and Isuzu in differentiating the product from Ford, um, so that's still a credit to them. Having experienced a lot of ranges, you still recognise bits and pieces. You recognise, sounds really stupid, but the way the door sounds when it shuts. You recognise some smells, some sounds. I don't think buyers are going to be held back by that. I don't think it's going to worry them too much, but I personally notice it, and that, for me, it's not a problem with it, but it's in, in the back of my mind when I'm driving it that it's a very different Amarok to the last one. I think the other problem with the Amarok as well is that the Amarok brand has strong significance with the V6 engine. And so for this style TDI 500 with the bi-turbo engine, it's by no means a bad truck. And if anything, it's actually a really good one. And with these new driveaway prices that they're doing at the moment, it's actually quite sharply priced. But the fact that, you know, I feel like tradies like to compete with each other in the workyard. And, you know, if you're coming up with a four-cylinder Amarok, they'll be like, why didn't you buy the V6? I guess that's something that you have to consider as well that a Ranger buyer may not have to deal with. Yes, and it's probably the apprentice pulling up in the four-cylinder Amarok and the foreman pulling up in the six-cylinder, but... It's really cruel, that, isn't it? Because ultimately the bi-turbo is an awesome engine and we've experienced this in Ford and Volkswagen products. And the style is a really well-specced car for the price. I, I just find it really funny that the first place we go is, this thing's fantastic, people are going to make fun of you. Yeah. Like, it, it's a bit ridiculous the way we think about these things, isn't it? Yeah, I guess, um, and on that front, uh, the interiors, you can see the similarities, but the exterior of the cars between the Ford and the Volkswagen look very, very different. So I'm curious, and I get it, it's subjective, but what do you, what do you guys feel about the styling of the Amarok compared to the Ranger? I personally prefer the Amarok. I, I like the cleaner lines and I like the perhaps the less squared off bits because the Ranger almost looks like a, a long, you know, coffin almost shaped <laughs> thing, especially up the front. You know, it's very squared off and it's very, um, very American. Mm. And I think what I, what has always been quite nice about the Amarok is that it's quite refined and it looks, it looks expensive even in lower grades. You know, you can even get a base Amarok on its, you know, smaller wheels and chubby tires and not the cool sports bars and the tub liners. And it still looks and feels quite nice inside, which is sort of playing into that Volkswagen brand where it's that little step up on what a mainstream vehicle is. Uh, I also prefer the overall design of the interior and the layout of some of the stuff um, and like the steering wheel for example that's a major touch point that I feel like Volkswagen does much better because it's lifted out of their other cars and the the user interface with the software is designed better in for me personally. I, I love the way especially the top end Amarok looks the Panamericana and the Aventura they've got this almost like concept car-y sort of rear end with the cutout tail lights uh, it's definitely a very different looking thing to the Ranger, which I rate. I think given the choice, I don't think I'd actually worry about it if I was buying a ute. I think I'd buy a ute for the, the way it does ute stuff, but I think the Amarok's probably the better looking of the two. So the Amarok starts, well, this style TDI 500 starts at just under 70 grand before on roads, which is 
I don't know. Some people think it's expensive. Some people think that's cheap. Um, I guess where does it stand in terms of the wider Ute market? It sits above a lot of its rivals like a D-Max or a BT-50, but it is cheaper than the equivalent Ranger when you sort of factor in the spec and the drive away price and that sort of thing at the moment. So I think it's priced fairly given what it is. Um, expensive is okay as long as it drives expensive and it looks expensive and it feels expensive. And in the context of Utes, the way the Amarok's priced it is reasonable, I would say. I guess one last thing about it is uh, it's not actually built in the same factory as Ford. Well, it is, but it isn't. So our Ford Rangers come from Thailand uh, and the Amaroks come from South Africa, which is where the European Rangers are built, but not our Rangers. So long story short, I guess you're going to get a little bit of a different build quality between the two vehicles as well. I know that on the early uh, models of the Amarok, there was some build quality issues. But have you guys noticed that with the, I guess, the later ones that have come? Uh, I wasn't aware of issues with the early ones. What were the problems they were finding? We had we had one uh, on test that the stitching on the passenger seat was all out of whack. Oh, right. Um, the, the top glove box, this is a Panamericana, uh, the top glove box wouldn't uh, work mm. properly. Like, there was a few issues, and, and maybe it was an early model, maybe it was pre-production, you know, you never really know, but um, it seemed to be a few of those issues early on with it, um, but you guys obviously Look, didn't it, notice anything. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, we, we see with a lot of cars that come through the early builds, well, they're bad, but there's little teething issues, especially given this plant has never built the Amarok before. Uh, previously, it was made in Argentina. So it definitely wouldn't surprise me if the early ones, there were examples that had problems with them. I personally, and the ones that I've spent extended periods of time with, haven't had any issues. I'd also probably like to put in there that Ford's not necessarily synonymous, <laughs> synonymous with bulletproof build quality either. And I think even the current generation Ranger has had similar things where we've seen misaligned bits of trim and, you know, even the previous generation had some shockers that I've tested personally. So, you know, these things happen and it's not just limited to Ford and Volkswagen. It's across a lot of manufacturers, across a lot of different factories. It doesn't really matter which country it comes from. There's always going to be problems. But, um, yeah, I think between the two of them, I, I don't think it's really one is worse than the other. It is funny because you mentioned before how we make fun of buying the four-cylinder, but it is, it is funny how as like a people we're quite accepting of Ford having sketchy build quality because it's a Ford, but a Volkswagen, if it's got bad build quality, that's a problem. They're right? victims of their own high standards, <laughs> yes. I would say. <laughs> yes. All right, so look, uh, if you're looking to buy a Volkswagen Amarok-style TDI 500, head to Help Me Car Expert because there's some ripper deals at the moment on these cars. Uh, I think it's the 23 models, they're trying to run them out. Mm -hmm. So some really good deals to be had uh, and you don't have to look very far to find those deals. All right, guys, uh, time to move on to our picks of the week. I know you've both got some exciting ones. So James, I'll pass over to you first. What is your pick for this week? Well, I'm back to my social media stuff. So I managed <laughs> to find during my death scrolling a very funny video of a lady introducing a very peculiar looking Suzuki Jimny. It's called the Dronco and it's like this. I'm pretty sure that's what you call someone at the pub after a few beers. Yes, well someone clearly went overseas and used that and wrote it down on a piece of paper and now has um, plastered it on a Jimny. But um, we've seen a few really cool um, design kits come out for various Japanese cars. A lot of them have been for the Jimny, we've seen some for the RAV4 and I think even the Honda Civic got some really interesting ones in Japan. And what this one is, it makes it look like a classic Ford Bronco. Um, and this one, <laughs> this particular one also was a cabriolet. So it had like the back quarter or the back half of the roof was open and it looked fascinating and it had like these cool little side steps with 63 um, embroidered onto, or not embroidered, but you know, stamped onto them and it had like the hubcap looking wheels and the old grills and stuff. And 
even though it was based on a Jimny, it looked quite large. I don't know whether the lady in the video is just really small or whether the car, <laughs> the car maybe has had a bit of a lift and a pump in ver various areas. So um, I thought that was really cool. What about you, Scott? What's your pick this week? I think the first thing I need to say is R.I.P. Gunter. Oh, yeah. Uh, after we spoke about him, all three of us last week, Gunter Stein has been sacked from Haas F1. Um, that's not my pick this week, though. I've got a straight-piped V12 uh, Mercedes-Benz S-Class. It's an S600. And it came out a little while ago, footage of one of these fully sideways in the UK, sounding like an F1 car. This is a guy in Tokyo, and he's driving it through uh, Ginza and Roppongi, which are the very sort of rich supercar areas and revving it at all these supercar owners who are looking going, what the hell is that thing? It sounds like a race car, but it's a classic old Mercedes tank. It's got the longest gearing in the world. It's fantastic. So um, something, you're gonna buy one and do the same thing? I'd love yeah. to, I would absolutely love to. Cruise the streets of Melbourne with the straight pipe V12 Mercedes. I reckon I'd get 300 metres before I got pulled over by some <laughs> overzealous cop going, what the hell's that? Yes, yes. Uh, well, speaking of, um, uh, overzealous cops and cars. <laughs> uh, my pick is from Summonats. Um, lots and lots of cool cars at Summonats that was just on. But the coolest one of all is a bloke who has imported a hearse from America mm. and turned it into the Ghostbusters Ecto-1. <laughs> oh, you it showed is, me this. That was it cool. Is, it is so cool. It is the coolest, coolest movie car I've ever seen someone make. Like, I've seen DeLoreans and stuff and they're all cool, but this thing was epic. It even had... You awesome. live next door to the bloke who's got one of the cars from Days of yeah. Thunder. <laughs> yes. Which is a really cool movie car. Yes, it's a very cool movie car, but this one is cool because it is just, it's something that you, it's like the family trucks are from National Lampoons. You just assume it only exists in movie land, but this guy's done it. So if you're out in Australia and you see Ecto-1, um, stop the guy and take a photo with it because I'd love to see some more <laughs> photos. And he's still building it, so I'd love to see some more pictures as that thing comes along. Nice. Uh, I think that pretty much wraps us up for this week. Guys, any final thoughts you want to leave us with? I've got nothing. That's odd from you. What about you, James? See you next week. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you all for joining us. We will be back, back next week. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a big Q&A. Uh, we want to answer any questions you have about what's coming in 2024. So any of your uh, car-related 2024 questions. We can't answer questions about the weather. We can't answer questions about the lottery, but we can talk about cars. So uh, leave a comment or write to us, podcast at carexpert.com.au. Any questions you have for what's to come this year. Uh, until next time, guys, I'll see you next week. Thanks all for joining us. See you next time.